Welcome to Now You Know, a podcast designed and developed to take the controversial and complicated questions facing both faith and the Catholic Church, and giving ourselves the space and time to explore and come to a deeper understanding of these topics. My name is Father Cody Williams, and I am your host for this podcast. Thank you for listening. Does sin exist? This is a rather fascinating question in that it is rather complex and has a lot of nuances that really affect both our modern society and the way we see this question. So to kind of start out, I want to look at a few modern day examples of ways that we've used the idea of sin or temptation as a way of advertising, so that you can see what I mean by the complexity and the difficulties inherent in this question. A while ago, I ran across an advertisement from Italy for gelato. In this particular series of advertisements, they had a priest and a nun, or just a priest, or just a nun, or a couple of priests, or a couple of nuns, that were very promiscuous. This particular advertisement reads, Submit to Temptation, which very clearly indicates something to do with sin. A very similar advertisement came from Jell-O. They made a brand of Jell-O called Seven Temptations, that was a type of pudding that was supposed to be really, really good. At least, that's what the advertisement intended it to say, that it'd be so tempting you must eat it. I didn't try it, I don't know, maybe you know. Or like the wine company that makes the bottle Seven Deadly Zins. All playing off this idea of sin and trying to recognize that there's something alluring in it. That in our modern day context, sin has been removed from its original context of something horrible that you don't do, to something that guides people to a temptation or it's almost alluring in a specific way. So with this kind of context in our mind, I want to really help us define sin, define existence, and really grasp the gravity of this question and also the nuances that are around it. To start out with, I want to start with the question of what is sin, so that we have a really good ground for what we mean by sin before we move into more complicated questions. The original context of sin comes from the Greek and Hebrew culture in that from the Hebrew culture they developed a word to describe what it means to be out of conformity with God's laws. But the original context of it was an archery term or a spear term in which when you're an archer or a spearman throwing an ar- an, a spear at a target or lobbing an arrow at a target, you have an intended mark you wish to hit. We call it the bullseye. It could be any particular mark. So that if you hit the mark, awesome, well done, you got the mark. But in the event that you missed, anything outside of the realm of that particular intended mark is considered a sin. Thus, the way to define sin is missing the mark. That works for both Hebrew and Greek culture. As the term was more used in a, a theological context, it developed another meaning. And that meaning was directly related to God's laws. So that God gave these specific laws that we're supposed to follow, and that truly doing what the law intends, following the law to his letter, led to like a bullseye. But anything beyond the context of that law, or interpreting the law differently, or following the law differently, led to something outside of that law. Thus would be considered a sin, missing the mark. In this particular context, sin and especially its relationship with the law, was connected to something outside of oneself, 
we have a way of determining whether or not someone has sinned. Namely, did they follow the law or not? Did they follow what God intended or not? Was it in relation to the law or was it a derivation off of it? All of this helps someone to define whether it was truly a sin or not. As we move forward into the Christian era and into our modern era, sin starts to take on different connotations, such as temptation or something very wrong, and even a more personalized tone. As we move into the Christian era, sin does not lose its context or its direction towards God's laws, but instead adds more character to it. That now sin is not just directly about God's laws, but also about how to follow God most faithfully and how to become a good person. What must I do to be virtuous? What must I do to be good? All that's tied in with it. As that moves out of the Christian era and takes on a more secular tone in the modern era, sin becomes associated with guilt. It's the feeling for doing something wrong. That's the new context, the new definition for sin. In the context of doing something wrong or the feeling of guilt associated with sin, sin now takes on a very personal tone. I determine what makes me feel guilty, or I can set whether I'm guilty or not. In this particular context, sin becomes incredibly individualistic. I cannot tell whether someone has sinned or not. It's based solely on what their perception of it is. So, for instance, if someone stole a cookie from the store and thought that they were hungry, therefore I should eat it, that would to them seem fine and good. They have no guilt over that. We, on the other hand, looking at the situation as an outsider, would say, no, wait, that seems wrong. How can you call that fine? Or, if someone decided to go on a murder spree and kill 20 people they disliked, but felt no guilt for it, does that mean they did not sin? It feels like if we really want to grasp the gravity of sin, how it's used in scripture, and how it's used in a more Christian context, then we need to see a different definition for it. We need some, some we need something that holds the firmness of the foundation of God's laws with the reality of what the person experiences. Something of those two need to go together. For that reason, I have a different definition that I want to use for sin that combines the two together and gives us a broader context and a more clear definition so that we can more fully explore the idea of sin and how it affects us. So the definition that I want to use for sin for the rest of this is a deprivation of the good. Yeah, a little bit complicated. We're going to have to go through all of those parts of that particular definition to really understand what I mean. So for now, hold on to this. Sin is the deprivation of the good. It's depriving the good of something of its goodness, or a twisting of the good to resemble something different. So what that means is, when someone sins, what they're doing is they're taking something that's essentially good and twisting it, perverting it, changing it, moving from that original good intention of the action into something less. Let me give you a few examples to help you understand what I mean by this, and that'll really clarify what I mean. So, for example, let's say someone is on a diet. And being on a diet, they are told they cannot eat sweets, which makes sense for most diets, either a carb loading or whatever. On this diet, I decide, man, that cake looks really good. I want to eat it. Now, eating a cake is not necessarily bad. It can be a great thing as a form of pleasure or as a good food to eat after a meal, 
But on this particular situation, I don't want to eat it or I shouldn't be eating it because of the diet that I'm on. However, by choosing to eat the cake as opposed to go with my diet, I'm switching my mind from something good, which is the diet, onto something less good, which is breaking from my diet. That gives us a sense of it. In more broad context, I have some examples of what I mean that are more uh, situational, such as eating. Eating is a good thing. Eating gives us nourishment, is meant to keep us well-stocked with energy so we can continue in our day. Eating is necessary for life. But eating can be twisted very quickly, like the example with the cake. It can be twisted into gluttony, in which I want to eat as much as I possibly can, and the more I eat, the happier I feel, and therefore it's awesome. But there are effects from that, negative effects. Eating a huge amount makes us feel lethargic and lazy and doesn't help us to be productive and progressive in life. On the other end of the spectrum is bulimia and anorexia, people who understand the importance of eating but twist it. So that anorexia would be, I feel like I'm fine, I get everything I need, I don't need to eat anymore, therefore my body image controls whether I feel like I need to eat. Or bulimia, I want the sensation of eating but without the effects of it, such as calorie intake. These are two ways in which it has been twisted. The easiest way to see this is in sexual relationships. Sex has a wonderful, good quality to it. It's unitive, it's procreative, it gives us a sense of connection with each other, and it really does bond two people together in a very prominent and important way. But sex can be twisted. We see that with pornography, sex addiction, molestation, and rape, none of which people would see as good. But the intention and the original foundation of sex is good. Another example is friendships. Friendships are great. They support each other. They work with each other. They form nice, strong emotional connections. But if we see friendship differently, like how John Paul Sartre did, then we see friendship as now what I want from it. A masochism, a sadism, a, a narcissism. How much pleasure or how much of my needs can I get fulfilled by that person without ex expecting anything of that person or even caring about the person as a person. Something that we can also struggle with to see the connection would be work ethic. Work on its own is a great thing. Work gives us a sense of accomplishment. It helps us feel productive. It gives us creative outlets so that our creative energy can be used as it should be. It makes us feel more human to be productive with something. But it has a flip side. It can be twisted. It can be twisted into laziness. Oh, I've worked hard all day. I've done a couple projects and they seem to succeed. Now I'm going to take the rest of the day off. I'm going to spend six hours watching TV. That can be lazy. It might not be, depending on the person. Laziness is when I choose my own pleasure over the productivity of work. The opposite side of that is a workaholic, someone who derives their pleasure simply from continuing to work to their own exhaustion. See how they're twisted. That's the whole point of what I'm getting at. The founding definition for sin that I'm going to use for this discussion is sin as the perversion of the good. Now, I've kind of explained it already, and now we need to go into the, the deeper levels of these words. 
starting out with the good. The idea of the good is a very important concept in this and in many other contexts. For if we have a foundation that says what is good, then we can launch off into lots of different fields. However, if we don't have a foundation, we're pretty stuck. For instance, if we cannot prove that there is a foundation for good, good actually exists as something out there, and is not simply a figment of my imagination, if we cannot prove that it's beyond my imagination itself, then we are stuck with a world in which morality makes no sense, for we're only talking about social issues and social structures. We also have no reason to talk about sin, for good is just simply what I feel like, and what I feel like is what I do, and therefore we're stuck there. The other flip side of it is if we don't see good as something foundational, something bridging or anchoring us down, then we have no reason to talk about right or wrong, but just pleasure and pain, which then we have to ask, what is pleasure and pain, and do I have any reason to say to someone, don't do that, or do that? Now, on the flip side, if we can declare that good is something outside of my imagination, somehow it exists in reality as some form of something, then it's not just my imagination that shows that something is good. Instead, it is my intellect that tells me that there are good things out there. And since there are good things out there, I can come to know them, appreciate them, and strive for them. They give me something worth recognizing and forming a whole mentality around to reach better and good things. Which means good on its own helps us progress and become good people, striving after wonderful and good things. So let's talk about good for a moment. I started out by saying that sin is a deprivation of the good. So then we have to say, well, so what is goodness? And we can discuss goodness on many different levels or different avenues. The first avenue I want to talk about is things having a purpose. This only works in the context of understanding how it can be deprived of its original goodness. So if we think of things as having a purpose, it works like this. Imagine that I am an inventor or creator, and I decide that I want to make something to keep my door open, because it keeps shutting on me and it's really annoying. So I decide to develop this little wooden piece that I stick under the door and it seems to work. The door stays open. Awesome! I've invented what we call a doorstop. The original intention behind that particular creation was to keep the door open, to stop the door. That's what I developed it for. Now, I could use it for many different things. It could be used as a paperweight. It could be used as a murder weapon, where I stab someone in the face with it. That's not what it was intended for. Its original intention was to keep the door open. Conversely, I could use a chair. A chair would work wonderfully for keeping the door open. It's sturdy, it's stable, it acts as a nice anchor point, gets in the way a little bit, but that's okay. But that's not what the chair was originally designed for. The chair was originally designed to be sat in as a place of rest. But it could also be used as a clothesline, it could be used as a shelf. It has lots of different purposes. But the original purpose of the chair was to be sat in. In these two particular situations, I would have a hard time arguing that by using it for a different purpose, it would be degraded immensely from its original context or its original purpose, but that its original purpose gives it its most meaning, gives it its most utility, since that's what it was designed for. 
Now, if we take that one step further out and dive into a theological realm, and we say, okay, just like I, the creator, invented the doorstop, what about the creator of the universe who created all things? Did he create with a purpose? And the resounding answer is yes. The reason why I can say yes is because the creator of all things created things with an intention, not just willy-nilly like, oh, I wonder if I want this, I wonder if I want that, but there was a focus, a reason for everything. And the reason is very simple on its own. Everything was designed to glorify the creator who created them, to give it utility in that way. So even the tree and the rock and the wind and the waves, all of them have purposes. Their ultimate purpose is to glorify God and to help us glorify Him. That's the point of it. Now we can twist those. For instance, a tree. A tree was designed for, in its most basic sense to provide oxygen, shade, and to make beauty for the planet. And probably a home for animals as well as food for them, which was kind of incidental to the tree itself. That being said, the tree can be used by our context for a number of different things. It can be used to build houses. It can be used to build sacred poles. It can also be used to make toothpicks, so we can take things out of our teeth. It can also be used as a murder weapon to stab people, like a stake. Yes, in that case, the stakes are high. Anyways, I have taken the original intention of the tree and morphed it into others. We could say that the building of a house is a good thing to use the tree from, whereas the using of the, it for a stake to kill someone would be considered a bad purpose because it continues to deviate from that original purpose into something we'd consider bad. That's what I mean by purposes. In our context, purposes are really hard to determine. How do I really determine what God intended for an, a particular creature or thing of its own? We can kind of guess to some extent because he intends all of it for his glory, so, the benchmark is, did it glorify him or not? That's the whole point. Beyond that, it's really hard to determine, is this truly God's creation, God's purpose, will for this or not? That leads us to another definition for good. And that is, what does it do? Does it lead to unity, harmony, um, life, well-being, health, all these good things? Are these the end product of this particular action or thing, or does it tend towards disunity, disharmony, and discord? So all good things tend towards unity, harmony, health, well-being. Let me give you the best example. Life itself. Life tends towards living. All creatures desire to live, and they fight to the, the end to survive and to live and to continue to develop and grow. We see this across all creatures on this planet. They all strive to live. Now, in order to live, there's quite a few processes that must exist. And the most important one is the unity of the body itself. The different processes that are involved, the intake and extake of food and excrement and all these things are part of that process that keeps the animal alive. So in those processes, we see life itself striving to live, striving to be good, in that sense. And so, good on this level means that the things that are good will strive towards unity, harmony, life, health, well-being. And we can see that. We can note it. Ah, look, that tends towards unity. That tends to be cohesive. Therefore, it must be good in its core. 
that also has its challenges. Because unlike things like a chair or a rock, where we can tangibly point them out, say, look, a rock right there, and everyone would agree, look, it's right there, it exists. We can't quite do that with goodness. But to this point, I want to come back to it in a moment when we enter the question, what does it mean to exist and what is existence? Because that'll form it much more clearly. The last point that I want to mention in the idea of goodness comes from a very theological point of view, and that is this. God the Creator created all things. God the Creator is also good and cannot do otherwise. Since He created all things, all things were created good. Therefore, intrinsic to the very nature of all things is their goodness. That gives them both the purpose and the foundation in goodness itself. All things are good. From that perspective, we don't have to wonder like we did with the purposes, neither do we have to come up with a big, lofty understanding of what it means that something has goodness as a quality of its own. Instead, we can just recognize the goodness in all things and say, okay, since it was good, is it being used towards a good end or is it being used towards a bad end? Is it being used towards its purpose or is it being used against its purpose? That's the point there. Now let's take the question I mentioned a moment ago, and merge it with that. And this is a question of existence. What does it mean that things exist? Such as, and the, the foundational question for this particular episode is, does sin exist? When we talk about existence, we're talking about something having intrinsic quality of being itself. It actually is there. In a more simple sense, we can point to it, we can touch it, we can see it, we can hear it. There it is. This thing is right here. And that's what we mean by existence. The thing itself is right here. So in that particular situation, we, existence is defined as the thing being. All things came to be because God created them. And as things that God created, he created them to be good. Therefore, the fact that they exist shows their goodness itself, and existence itself is good. In this particular context, goodness is tied to the thing itself because of its existence and because God created it. Therefore, all things have intrinsic goodness to themselves. They are good at their core. And therefore, we have to re-examine and evaluate what we mean by evil and how it perverts that goodness, which is the next thing. Does evil exist? Does good exist? Let me start with a thought experiment to really uh, bring out this idea of evil's existence and good's existence. So, good is that which tends towards unity, harmony, well-being, health, life. Evil or bad is that which tends towards disunity, disharmony, and discord. So, if we have an all-good God that creates, he creates things that are unified, harmonious, good, I know I'm using it again, anyways, or lead to health and well-being. We can see these things. Things that exist tend to hold their intrinsic unity. A rock holds together until something smashes it into smaller rocks, then it's still a rock. Things that are created like a chair, they hold their unity as a chair, as a good thing. Conversely, we don't have very many examples of things that are truly evil, where they tend to just break down into nothingness. 
And the principal reason for this is if things were intrinsically evil, they would cease to exist. Existence itself is good. In a similar way, things that would be considered evil would break down and disunify and disharmonize so quickly that they would not exist at all. Subsequent to the fact that they didn't exist to begin with. Therefore, nothing that could be intrinsically evil can exist on its own. It can't be a thing of its own. It can't be out there to the point where we touch it, taste it, feel it, smell it, know of its being on its own. Instead, it has to be tied to something else. Now, in a very similar way, we can say the same thing about goodness. That goodness, I can't really point to taste, taste, touch, smell, feel, whatever. I can't really touch goodness. And that's where we're having a bit of a conflict. And the way I want to compare this is to like colors red or the smell or the touch of something. Something smooth or something rough, something red or something green are all qualities that something has. They're not, at, they're not things of their own where I'd point out and say, look, there's red. We'd ask a red what? No, just red. There's the color red walking down the street, which if you try to imagine that, it'd be a blotch of red or a square of red. It's just not red of its own. It's something being red. So red, and colors in general, and touches, the way something feels, like soft or hard, are all qualities associated with the thing itself. They're not things in themselves. They are qualities. And as qualities, we can look at that the same way as we see goodness. That goodness is a quality of a thing. It's a quality that causes unity, that causes harmony, that causes life, that causes the... the the unity of all things. And that's where we can see goodness active and not evil. Where if evil was a quality of a thing, it would not exist, it would be disharmonious and just fall apart into whatever, and it would not be there. Therefore, good can be a quality of a thing, but evil cannot be. Now, let me take it one step further. Let me do one last thought experiment because this is very important for understanding the implications of all this. So we let's say there's an all-good God and an all-evil God. The all-good God creates things that exist and the existence is good and they are unified and they form a whole and they are things themselves. Now there's an all-evil God who creates things that are in disharmony, discord, that fall apart, cease to exist. And now they're at odds with each other. They're fighting each other. So what happens in the end? Do things fall into chaos? Do they fall into unity? Does one win over the other? How does this all play out? How do, what happens when an evil thing and a good thing interact? What happens? This thought experiment is meant to show the point that how can there be an all-evil being that would largely be disunified and fall apart and cease to exist? He would never exist to begin with, or she would never exist to begin with, because they couldn't. There would be no unity, there'd be no harmony, there'd be no way for it to keep as a thing itself, it'd fall apart. Therefore, the fact of an evil being cannot exist. Instead, it would be a being so deprived of its goodness that it doesn't resemble much of its original goodness at all. It is on this point that I want to continue going. And I want to bring us back to the main point of the existence of goodness, and the existence of evil. So when I started with this idea of existence, I mentioned that good exists as a quality of its own. 
so that we can point out into the world and say, yes, that seems to hold the characteristics of goodness, and therefore goodness exists in it. Evil, on the other hand, I have already shown, does not exist, because if evil exists, it would be contradictory to itself, and therefore it could not exist by the very fact of what it is. But, when I started this um, discussion on sin, I mentioned that sin and evil are deprivation of the good. They're a degradation or twisting of the good into something that doesn't conform to its original goodness. In that way, evil and sin on their own are now a twisting of the good. They're not a, it's not a quality of its own. It's a recognition that the thing that was originally good has fallen from its goodness into something less, something that doesn't resemble anymore. And that's how we see good and evil. So that when we get to the end analysis, and now we want to answer the question, does sin exist, we have more tools to play with. Does sin exist? The answer is no. Sin does not exist. Sin is not a thing of itself to which I can point it out and say, yes, there is sin. That is sin itself. Neither can I say that of evil. Look, that is evil. Ta-da, we found evil. Instead, what we're recognizing with sin and evil is we're recognizing the quality of the thing and the purpose that it was intended for have been twisted or changed. It has fallen from its goodness. The best example I want to use comes from the book of Genesis. Here we have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and God gives them one command. Don't eat of the fruit in the middle of the garden. Eve looks at the tree, the serpent tempts her, she says, oh, the tree doesn't look so bad, fruit looks good, wisdom seems to be a good thing, these are all good things in themselves, I don't see any problem with eating this fruit. And so she does. That's that twisting mentality that I'm talking about. Just a few chapters later, we have the same thing with Cain and Abel. Cain is displeased with his sacrifice, displeased by the fact that God is displeased with his sacrifice, and so decides to do something about it. God tells him to work harder. He says, mm, no, if I get rid of my competition, then you'll accept my sacrifice. So he goes and kills Abel. He twists the idea of what it means to work hard and how to get what he wants into something lesser than it should have been. That's that twisting mentality that I've been bringing out several times already. That sin does not exist of its own accord as a thing. It is the recognition of the twisting from its original goodness into something less. That is sin. The last question that I want to address that kind of brings all this together is this one. Does sin matter? It really is an important question for everyone. If sin does not exist of its own accord, but is a way of seeing the world, then why does it really matter? Can I just ignore it and do what I feel like? Well, there's two sides of this question that are worth addressing. The first one is, if good exists, and I argue that it does, if there's a quality to things that make them good, and is intrinsic to the things themselves, and good is worth striving for, because it brings us health, well-being, unity, harmony, all those things, then we should be striving for the good. We should be striving to work towards things that are better. We should be striving always to work towards the intrinsic goodness of things and let ourselves be healed, formed, cultivated in goodness itself. Therefore, sin is immensely important because sin tells us when something has been deprived of its goodness. Sin tells us that something has lost what it should have been. 
Sin tells us that we have something to strive for in that, and sin tells us what the good should be. So all these things are important and helpful for us if we're trying to do what's right and good, if we want to live good lives. On another level, sin as a social thing is very important as well. For sin is not just an individualistic concept where, dang, I have done something wrong, I have, um, I feel guilty, or even I've seen that this isn't the way things should be. I've done something to deprive it of its goodness. In that way, sin is not about me. It's social. Let me give you an example. Let's say I'm a thief, and I go and steal something. What has just happened? Most of the time, we limit it to, I have just taken the object from that guy, he no longer has it, we're done. But let's really examine this for a moment. I'm going to be the guy who was robbed and really get a sense of what he experienced as the effects of this particular action. Because at its core, the, the idea of obtaining property and the idea of getting things is not bad. There's a goodness to it. We need things to live our lives, to be productive, to do good things. All that is necessary it necessitates having things. So the guy who stole isn't necessarily doing something intrinsically evil. He's taking the good of possessing things and twisting it into how he possesses them. Okay, so now I'm the guy who was robbed. Here, I once had this object that had monetary value and I no longer have it. I've been deprived of the object, I've been deprived of its wealth, and I've been dehumanized because I've been treated as though I can just have things stolen from me. I feel like I cannot be safe any longer since someone has broken into my place and taken this from me, or I don't feel safe in the context of society if I was walking down the street or something like that. On that level, I feel sad, if not dehumanized. I'm going to go tell my friends and family. They're also going to feel sad and depressed because of what's happened to me. Therefore, this event has not just affected me. It's now affected the people I know as well on the larger level. Let's switch. Now I'm the robber guy. As the robber, I have decided that that guy is devalued because I can just take things from him at my leisure. Similarly, I have decided that I need as many objects as I can, regardless of how I get them. Lastly, I have now cultivated a sense in my life in which I can just take things from people without consequence. But that does have a consequence, because now I am cautious because I don't want people to know what happened in case they turn me in and put me in jail, or indict me for what's happened. I also want to be cautious because, although I feel like I want to keep stealing, and hopefully that's not the case, I need to make sure no one knows how I'm doing it or what's happening. So now I've cultivated a whole mentality in my life devoted to this idea of stealing. It'll affect my relationships with others because I will feel like I can degrade them or dehumanize them or take from them, and that'll hurt those relationships. And now I have cultivated a whole network of problematic relationships and ways of dealing with people all because of the event of me stealing. As more and more people do this, more and more relationships break down, and we have more and more problems. More and more people are feeling affected by the event of stealing. This is not a simple individualistic problem anymore. This is now a full societal problem. That being said, 
I don't want to expand this to the point that we talk about all issues of the world as intrinsically caused by one action, the butterfly effect, for instance. I remember there was a huge movement at one point in New Orleans to talk about the hurricane that hit Katrina, for instance, as an effect of the sin of that city. That's a little bit too causal for me. I would not want to make such strong links, but maybe it's the judgmentalism of the people who said that that caused the hurricane. Who knows? The, the ultimate point that I want to get at is that sin is not individualistic. It's societal. And that when we cause sin, when we degrade something, when we remove it from its original goodness or twist it, we are actually causing problems on a whole global level. And all those things do add up over time to the point where if we want to remedy or fix them, it takes an incredible amount of effort to overcome the difficulties that have been caused by our actions. To quickly summarize so that we can bring everything back to its core, the main points of this particular episode are the following. Sin is defined as a depriving of its goodness. Goodness is that which is intrinsic to a being because it exists. It also is a quality where it tends towards unity, wholeness, well-being, and harmony. So that when something causes something to sin, it's depriving it of its goodness. In that way, sin does not exist of its own accord. It is not a thing of itself. But instead, sin is a quality that describes that something has been removed from its goodness or twisted from its goodness. This sin is not an individualistic thing. It is a societal issue that when we start to twist and morph things out of their goodness, we cause more and more problems as we strive for goodness and strive for intrinsically good things. So in summary, does sin exist? No. But sin is still very much so a problem as we see it twisting and morphing things from its goodness when we are striving to be good people. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions or requests for topics, please email me at cwilliams at ctkmsla.org. Now You Know is hosted by Father Cody Williams, produced and edited by Jake Sheridan, written by Father Cody Williams. Music for today's show was provided by freemusicarchive.org. A special thank you to the artist Scott Holmes for their music on today's show. 